0: Hey guys, this is Tyler. Before I start this episode, I have a message for my accredited investors. Are you guys tired of the same old boring syndications? Have you ever wished you could invest in a virtually recession-proof market? Well, here's your chance to join me as I literally buy Key West, Florida. That's right, Key West, Florida. How do you get involved? You go to keywestcashflow.com forward slash call and book a call with me today. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the Cashflow Guys Podcast. That's right, boys and girls. It's that time of day. This is Tyler Sheff, and I am the host of the Cashflow Guys Podcast. And this week, we're talking about garbage in and garbage out. And what spawned this episode is I've been doing a lot of underwriting lately. I've been tearing things apart, putting them back together, looking at spreadsheets and income statements and profit loss and rent rolls and all that good stuff to get to whether or not we have goes or no-go deals, Right go or no go, and that's how I look at things. It's either I'm going to roll up my sleeves, I'm going to dive into this thing, I'm going to spend more time looking at this this deal or the potential for this deal, or I'm going to back away and move on and look at something else, and that's something I look at every single time I think about a deal. Now, people know that I'm out here in, in Key West, in the Florida Keys, and I'm looking to buy both short and long-term rental opportunities, right? We're starting our new fund. And you guys heard here, the little brief commercial at the front end of this episode that uh, we're looking for accredited investors in this first round. We'll be bringing non-accredited investors in on the second round. But on the first round, we're looking for folks that are accredited by IRS definition. And you can Google that, but basically it's, if you're single, you make, you're making $200,000 a year or more for the last two or more years. Or if you're married, you're making 300,000 a year or, you have assets in excess of, of 1 million. That makes you an accredited investor. And the reason why we chose that before I'll just start off here, because I'm sure people are wondering, geez, Tyler, why are you cut me out? I'm a, I'm not accredited. Well, because the, the securities and exchange commission says for us to be able to legally advertise our fund, we must focus on accredited investors. And then later we can do what they call a, because we're doing what they call a 506C syndication and a 506C gives us permission, authority, in other words, to advertise, provided that we only consider investment opportunity from accredited investors. And the 506B allows us to, be as a boy, allows us to take in non-accredited investors, folks that don't make 200000 two or $300,000 a year and do not have assets in excess of a million, but we can't advertise. So we're going to use this The 506C as in Charlie exemption first go around, and then we'll probably transition into a B, uh, probably on our next fund because we'll wrap this one up here relatively quickly and then we'll move into the second one. So don't think we I've forgotten about you. I'm not cutting anybody out. We will be making, uh, opening a, new, a second fund probably later this year, early in uh, 2022 to get things rolling for non-accredited investors. So if you ever thought about investing in real estate, you want to do something more passively, you rather just invest in my deals instead of going out and try to find your own then get on my calendar and give me a call. Like the ad said, you go to keywestcashflow.com forward slash call. That's keywestcashflow.com forward slash call and get on my calendar. With that, what have I been looking at lately? Well, I've been looking at I've been talking to a lot of realtors and actually I've talked to a couple wholesalers. What I'm realizing is a lot of folks are making decisions based on rules, based on these these uh investor rules, so to speak. And Guys, I'm a big believer in in things like hurdle rate and whatnot, which essentially is the the 1% or the 1.5% rule. And It's fine. They have their purpose in life, but they're not the end-all, be-all. And what I mean by that is when you use these type of rules to decide whether or not something makes sense as an investment opportunity, the idea is for you to streamline the amount of time you spend focusing on something that's just too far out of the realm of reality. Well, what I mean by that? Well, if I use, let's say you use the 1% rule. And for the record, the 1% rule, it's rule—it's—it's defined basically as the expected monthly rent divided by the ARV or the after-repaired value of the home. So if a property makes uh, properties for sale for a million dollars, it should generate 1% of a million dollars in income for it to be worthwhile to pay attention to. That's if you use 1%. I'm not necessarily a fan of 1%. I'm a little more conservative than that. I'm closer to the one25 or 1.5%. Um, And there's lots of factors in there. I'm not going to go deep down a rabbit hole and all that good stuff because the message I want you to take away from this is that these are simple rules of thumb to decide whether or not you should focus more energy on it. So in the case of a million dollar property, a million dollar property at the 1% rule should generate $10,000 in income, $10,000 in income. And if it doesn't generate $10,000 in income, well, then that's a problem, right? That's that's not going to work. So to kind of give you an easier mathematical equation that might equate to something in your market, let's say if you're looking at a house that's $75,000 on the 1% rule, it should bring in at least $750 a month rent. If that house is $100,000, it should bring in $1,000 rent, $200,000, $2,000 $2, rent. You get the picture. But obviously, this is not the end-all, be-all. This is not the only decision and the only factor to consider. And that's the thing that gets a lot of people caught up they figure, oh, well, it passes the 1% or the 1.5 rule, depending on how aggressive or conservative you are. They, that's as far as they go and they stop right there. Well, there's a lot more to consider guys. That is just a, that tool is used to decide whether or not the deal initially could make sense, even remotely make sense. I'll go so far as to say. So let's use that, that $750 in rent example. We know that for a house that generates $750 a month and gross rent, we should not be paying out more than $75,000, give or take, for that property. So if the property is priced at 325000 with a rent income of seven twenty-five or seven fifty, we know that we are leaps and bounds away from where we need to be. So that would probably tell me that that property is not ideal for a rental property. It doesn't mean that the property is overpriced. It could be a retail deal. It could be for a buy and hold person. It's just not ideal for a rental because understand this, not all properties make sense as rentals at all. There's, you know, A percentage of them do, and a lot of them do, but not every property can make an ideal rental property. Some of them simply don't make sense. That's why I always tell people, don't buy condos and townhomes or houses that have HOAs as rental properties. And the reason for that is there's usually a maintenance fee or a condo association or an HOA fee that's m- mixed in there that's going to we have to be added to that or taken away from that rent. So in this example of the $75,000 house, if you use the 1% rule later in your due diligence, you're going to figure out that, oh, there's a $400 monthly maintenance fee and HOA fees that apply to this property. Well, that means you only got, if you if you take 750 and you minus 400 off of it, that leaves you with $350. Well, that now that dog doesn't hunt. That tells you that the property does not generate enough income to substantiate a $75,000 price. So you can either pass on the property, you can negotiate it, explain to the seller that math just simply doesn't work. You'd be losing money if you bought the property. You don't know. Maybe they got a a problem. Maybe they have urgency. They need to sell it at a significant discount. Or maybe they just guessed at the price. I know realtors out there, guys that guess at prices. Uh, I find that a lot. I find that a lot, a lot, way too much especially when you're getting into multifamily and commercial properties and business properties and things like that, where the agents, they just lack the training. They don't have the experience they've never learned because real estate school doesn't teach you that. Matter of fact, the, the broker in the state of Florida, unless you go to broker school and get your broker's license, the real estate licensing doesn't cover investing hardly at all. I mean, very, very little. There's like a paragraph. If you go get your broker's license, they go a little bit deeper into it. But still, you're not walking out of there with like a CCIM commercial uh, investment manager designation or anything like that. It's very light and to the point. Uh, that's why I, f- I don't understand why people waste their time getting a broker's license unless they're going to open their own brokerage. Frankly, that's why I don't have a broker's license. There's no incentive for me to go through the drama of getting my broker's license because I'm not. There's nothing to be learned. Hell, I could teach the course, and it doesn't change my paycheck because my broker doesn't care whether or not I have a broker's license. I use his. So it just makes more sense for me not to worry about it, right? So garbage in, garbage out. The problem with these rules, like the 1% rule, is that the monthly rent figures are often actual, or they're not actual, they're often estimated. And if you're using figures that are estimated, clearly you understand that that means that the end result of whatever you come up with will also be inaccurate. So if you think that a property rents for $750 a month and you use that as a decision factor to see if the property is priced right at $78,000 or $75,000 or whatever it may be, then understand that that $75,000 is already inaccurate because the rent that you use to get there is inaccurate. So here's a good example of that. When I first started buying properties in Memphis, and I still see this today, guys, when I bought my first couple apartment buildings, the people I bought it from said, Oh, these will rent for 750 all day long. Well, me being from Florida and from a metro area like Tampa Bay, I thought 750 that's even conservative. I could rent any two bedroom apartment in Pinellas County for 750, and that was even back then in 2014. It's like 750 was cheap. Market rent at the time was 900. And that was in Florida obviously, but I didn't really think too much that rents would be that different in Memphis, Tennessee, and in reality, these were D as in David, as in Delta, as in dog shit type properties. And the rent amount, the actual rent on these properties, when I bought them, it was like two hundred to two hundred twenty-five dollars a month. Yes, two hundred twenty-five dollars a month for a, a seven, eight hundred square foot two-bedroom apartment. Uh, it's that's just how it goes up there. So had I done math based on what I thought they would, what the seller's opinion was of the rent, even though he knew damn well he wasn't collecting anywhere near that, I would have got caught short, way short. Um, and I dove in to start look at, okay, what are the other apartments rent for in the immediate area? I went on places like apartment.com, like Zillow, Craigslist, started trying to figure out what is reasonable rent for a two bedroom, one bath in Memphis, Tennessee, in that general neighborhood. And when I started seeing, you know, $49 move in special first month free and a monthly rental of two forty-nine ninety-nine a month, it started to make sense. I'm like, Oh I see. Okay, so apparently the data I got was bad wrong. Fortunately, I didn't get suckered into that, but lots of people do, and you got to remember that. Uh, don't get caught up in that thing. And what another thing comes into is when you're deciding, when you're going backwards using this rule, and you're thinking what it should be worth, $75,000, let's say, what's this whole thing we talk about after repaired value? Well, guys, how f- accurate is that figure? Number one, are we using a licensed contractor to give us an accurate estimate that won't change to determine what the repair costs are? Are we hiring an appraiser to come in and do an appraisal uh, using something like rather mainstream like uh, FHA appraisal guidelines to give us a, an opinion of fair market value? In other words, what a bank would put on it for value because value is important if you're going to borrow money against the property. And unfortunately, the only opinion the banks are going to respect is that of a licensed appraiser. They don't care what the realtor says. They certainly don't care what the seller says. So if you think your value is significantly different than what an appraisal might say, then maybe you should pony up some cash and get an appraisal. We talked about that in a previous episode. I can't begin to tell you how valuable paying for an appraisal is in the grand scheme of things. It's chump change to pay for an appraisal as compared to the value you'll get out of it, if you see it that way. Maybe the wholesalers estimating ARV. And I'm telling you, i see these all the time. I still get emails from the Tampa Bay market. These guys are, they're on crack. I mean, they're just, they'll say, you know, two bedroom, one bath hoopty in Pasco County. That's got two meth heads living in it. And the back end of it's burned off. They'll say the ARV is $300,000 and it only needs five grand worth of repairs. It just needs carpet. It's like, dude, dude, that's a chalk line over there in the living room. It needs a little more than carpet. Uh, realtors, Hey, you know, realtor's job is to sell property. Their job is not to appraise property. So, they don't know. You know, the seller says they saw on Zillow that it's worth $300,000. Great. Then they'll put it on the market for $300,000. You guys saw when I sold one of recent properties over back in St. Petersburg, Zillow gave the seller like a $150,000 too low estimate. Zillow told him his house was worth about 120, I think it was $120,000 less than what I sold it for. So there's a great example, I mean, of how this data is flawed. It's just not accurate. Uh, so we got to keep this in mind, guys. This is the stuff we, we can't overlook because this will get us in deep, deep trouble. And I can tell you that most folks um, that I know, when you're in the due diligence part, are not going to break out, bust out their, their wallet and pay for an appraisal. That's why when you do these calculations, they can only help you determine whether or not you want to roll up your sleeves and go further not whether or not you should buy this particular property. So make the distinction that you understand that the whole idea here is this is a quick test to see if it's even in the ballpark. Are we in the same state? Are we in the same zip code? Does this make sense, right? That's it, that's all that matters. So the big question a lot of folks have is how the hell do I determine ARV? Because I don't know, I'm, I'm not an appraiser, I don't know. And understand, first of all, ARV is a is a opinion of value. An appraisal actually is an opinion of value. The difference is is that the appraiser is bound to use specific types of data to determine what the appraised price of the home is. Well, if you're just a realtor or a wholesaler or some seller or some buyer, you're not held to any standard, none whatsoever. You can just say, I'm going to use, I don't know, the property records from 1876 to determine my property value. You can do whatever you want. There's unfortunately no rules. So, understand that when you people provide you with that ARV figure, that's as good as me covering both eyes and saying, and you saying, hey, Tyler, pick a number. And I go, 79,000. And then you buy it at 79,000 and get mad at me when it's not a good deal. That's about the logic in that. So, keep that in mind. So, how do you determine ARV? Well, single family homes, primarily uh, the after repair value, you should be using sold comparables, sold comparables, not what's for sale. Sold comparables wholesalers are notorious for using properties that are for sale. Oh, look! So, Jimmy's selling this place across town that's on the ocean and has a pool and 14 stories in a guest house uh, for 50 million. So, this crappy duplex in the hood has got to be worth half of that, right? No, wrong. So, what does like kind mean? Sold like kind properties. Well, if you're looking at a two bedroom, one bath house that's 900 square foot. You should not be comparing a three-bedroom, two-bath, two-story house with a pool that's 3,000 square foot because those properties are not like kind. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you look at a two-bedroom, one-bath, that's 980 square foot, you should be looking for two-bedroom, one-bath properties first, and secondly, that are within plus or minus 20% of the square footage of the subject property or the property you're trying to determine the value of. How do I come up with this criteria? Well, I cheated. It's called the FHA uh, the FHA appraisal guidelines. That's what they teach the appraisers. So if the appraisers are the one that go to all the schooling to determine the appraisal amount, what an appraisal amount should be and how it's calculated, it would logic would dictate that you could use some of those same parameters. Now, obviously, they go a lot deeper when they determine value, and they factor in a lot of different things, but I don't need you to write a master's thesis on the value of the property. I just need to make sure that you don't overpay, okay? And if you're representing somebody else, I want to make sure that you get them top dollar if that's the case, right? So we want to be as accurate as we possibly can. When it comes to multifamily properties or income properties, and this includes, guys, multifamily, office, storage, hotels, parking lots, you name it, we're going to use income methods or methods that, that the value is derived from the income, okay? That's very important because these are investment quality properties, or at least they should be. And we want to factor in or put a lot of weight on the income the property generates. There's two most common ways that we do that. One of those is using gross rent multiplier. Okay, gross rent multiplier. The other one is using cap rate. Uh, now, I make fun of cap rate a lot because I'm, the reason why I make fun of it is people use it as the only guide to determine whether or not they're going to buy something. I mean, I know people that have literally bought up big apartment buildings. I know syndicators that have bought big apartment buildings, multi million dollar deals, only because they liked the cap rate. They didn't break down the expenses, none of that. They just guessed that they could do basically completely guessed. It's like, you know, taking a handful of marbles and and throwing them out in the air and seeing what sticks. That's all they did. And I could tell you how, you can imagine how the rest of that story went. Not well. So to to the formula to calculate GRM it's called GRM or gross rent multiplier and you can Google this and you there's YouTube videos on the topic and I'll probably make some on the topic to help you guys out with this but it's property price. So property price divided by the gross rental income. That equals the gross rent multiplier. So how do you determine that? Well like cap rate, an area or a market will come up will substantiate or have its own, Gross rent multiplier. For example, I'm in Key West. There's a gross rent multiplier in Key West for the the municipality, for the city. And what we look at is for the market area, I should say, the MSA. In Key West, properties sell for so much. And those properties, we can go back in the records and see what was the advertised income at the time. You know, how much did they rent for? We could take what they sold for, the price they sold for, divide that by the rental income and come up with a gross gross rent multiplier. And let's say if that gross rent multiplier is a six, maybe that's the answer. We get six as the gross rent multiplier. I can then take that known factor, that gross rent multiplier, and either divide it by or divide it into, or multiply it by or divide it into either the gross rental income or the property price to determine the value that's missing. So if I have the rental income, what I think the rental income should be, versus the gross rent multiplier of six for the market, I take those two factors, I multiply them together, and I come up with what the property price should be. Does that make sense? Okay. We, you can dive in and there's people that have got charts and spreadsheets and all kinds of things to to make this even harder. But you can go on YouTube and Google is a great resource that they'll draw it out. I know aud- audibly it's probably a little more challenging to look at, but it's just like using a financial calculator when you're doing using a financial calculator. Usually you input all the data that you know and you leave off or solve for the data that you don't know. So if you want to know the mortgage payments, well, on a 10B2 calculator, you put in the, the, the interest rate, the term, the loan amount, and the future value, and then hit calculate, and it will fill in what the payment is for you. And if you know the payment, and you know the duration of time, and you know the interest rate, and you, and you know that the, whether or not there's a balloon payment, and you want to figure out how much money you can borrow with those terms, You leave the value part open and it will fill it in for you. That's what it solves for, calculates for. So don't want to go way down a rabbit hole with that one. I'll leave you there. We're going to wrap up here in just a second. But uh, cap rate's the other one. It's basically net income divided by purchase price. So let's make sure I'm clear about this. Gross rent multiplier is based on gross rental income. Cap rate is based on net income. So there's a big difference there, right? Cap rate. Factors in expenses, and a lot of times, sometimes if if the most of the time, expenses are a challenge to get for properties that are for sale because the realtors never ask for them, or the sellers aren't prepared with it, or they you know maybe it's garbage in, garbage out, right? But so we have to estimate. Rule of thumb, I use fifty percent. I figure quick math, I figure the expenses are probably fifty percent or less of what a property makes. So if a property rents for a thousand bucks, I'll knock 500 bucks off, or I divide it by two to come up with my, that's my half of my expenses. And I base my cap rate on the balance, 500 bucks. So if you've got a property that generates $12,000 a month in income, 12,000 divided by two is 6,000. 6,000 divided by the purchase price would give me the cap rate, or times the the purchase, divided by the purchase price to give me the cap rate, or you put in, if you know the cap rate for a market, like it's a five cap and the thing generates $6,000, you multiply those two together and you come up with a purchase price, not rocket science. Again, that's something else you can dive into uh, on Instagram, or not Instagram, I'm sorry, on YouTube, on, on Google. It's not rocket science. These are very simple things. Calculating these numbers, guys, using estimated numbers is always going to lead you with to inaccurate results. Please understand that. I can't begin to stress how much that matters and i know that it's difficult guys i know it's challenging to get this information from the sellers and the wholesalers and the realtors and i know that everybody's making it up or lying or whatever they are but at the end of the day do the best you can to get as accurate as you can use this information to help you make a decision if it's worth the focus of your very important time to go further with the 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 underwriting of the deal or not You won't have enough time in the day to underwrite every opportunity that crosses your desk. This is simply a a cheat way to make it happen, make it done, get it done quickly so you can move on to the next opportunity, guys. I hope you have a great week. I hope you get out there and take some action. I'll catch up with you next time. This concludes today's episode. You don't have to wait till the next episode to learn to earn.